Good morning. My name is Dave Shrine. I'm the pastor of college and young adults here at Mountain Park. And uh, I'm very excited to get to share with you this morning um, <clears throat> about the gospel. It's, uh, if you look on the front of your program, it says, All In, The Gospel Collides with Life. And I'm super stoked to get to share with you what God has been doing in my life uh, the past five years and even my life the past week as I prepared for this. Um, I want to put a precursor or a preface out there that a lot of the content that I'll be sharing from today, our college and young adults group 242, uh, we've been going through a 12 session series called Vintage Jesus, 12 commonly asked questions about Jesus. And so a lot of the content that I'm sharing with you and a lot of the, the, uh, the concepts and a lot of the truths come from our knowledge uh, that we've been learning about who Jesus is in the college and young adults group. So I kind of want to put that preface out there. Um, the video that you just watched, that's actually one of the first videos that I ever made um, when I entered into full-time vocational ministry uh, five years ago. Uh, I, we were doing, in our college and young adults group at my previous church, we were doing a series called Colossians, The Gospel Collides with Life. And over the summer, I had the opportunity to learn how to use uh, video editing software. And so I put together what you just saw. And the song that I used as the soundtrack, it's a tune by David Crowder Band. It's called A Beautiful Collision. And I love the chorus. The chorus says, here it comes. A beautiful collision is happening now. There seems no end to where you begin. And here I am now. You and I collide. And taking that chorus and putting it together with the subtitle for Colossians, The Gospel Collides with Life, as I listened to it over and over and over, and as I saw that phrase on the, on the video editing software over and over and over, I started to ask myself, what does it mean for the gospel to collide with life? More importantly, what does it mean for the gospel of Jesus Christ to collide with my life? And so up until that point, I had kind of been doing the, the, the life of just a good Christian. I was, I was accomplishing and I was keeping all of the, 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 the list of things that a good Christian boy was supposed to do. I was, I was reading my Bible, I was praying, I was serving in the church, I was giving my money. I was doing all of the stuff that a good Christian was supposed to be doing. And I was staying away from all of the things that good Christian boys were supposed to stay away from too. I was doing a pretty good job of keeping myself away from the big, from the gross, from the, the, the huge sins of life. But as this phrase, the gospel collides with life, started to interact with my heart and with my mind more and more, I realized that while I had kept the big and the gross sins away from, from my daily walk, there were some small sins. There were some things that crept in, some when I was a lot younger, some as I got older. And a lot of these small sins just kind of worked their way into my life, and I kind of didn't realize that they were there. As a matter of fact, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, Jerry Bridges has a word for what I'm saying, small sins. He calls them refined sins, and he has this to say about them. Most often, our sin problem is in the area that I call refined sins. These are sins of nice people, sins that we can regularly commit and still retain our positions as elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, Bible study leaders, and even full-time Christian workers. And so my refined sins, they kind of were the things that I had become comfortable with. And I think for a lot of us, our refined sins, we become comfortable with them because over such a long period of time, 
It's just part of our daily life. It's just part of what we do. And we forget that it didn't used to be that way. We forget that we didn't used to give in to this small sin. We forget that we used to live a life worthy of the gospel in these small areas. But because we become so comfortable with them, they just creep in and we forget that they're there. But then I started to think about what it meant, again, for the gospel to collide with my life. Not the gospel to collide with my life to keep me away from the bad sins, the gross sins, but, my, but the gospel colliding with my entire life, every room of my heart, every corner of my soul, for the gospel to come in and have an impact over everything. And I realized that even these small, these refined sins grieved the heart of God. In Ephesians, Paul writes, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. What am I to do when I finally come face to face with the fact that even these small, refined sins grieve the heart of God? What are we to do when we realize that these small sins that have just been a part of our lives and it's just the way that it is, when they begin to weigh on us, when we get, begin to realize that they, that they separate us from God, what are we to do? There's one answer, and I would submit to you, it's embrace the gospel of Jesus. The reality is, is that gospel is a word that we hear so many times from the early stages of our faith all the way up until now. It's a word that gets thrown out in the Christian circles. It's not just limited to religion, but it's limited to, or it's expanded to all of life. Sometimes we'll be in the middle of a conversation, people will use a word like specious, and we don't really know what that means, but we pretend we do for fear of looking stupid because specious, it sounds like something I should have learned in 11th grade, and I'm now 12 years out of high school, and I don't want to admit that. So we just kind of go along with it. Well, in religion, I think it gets even even more difficult to navigate through because you got words like gospel, you got sanctification, purification, justification, all these shuns at the end of the words and we're just supposed to know what they are. And so we just kind of, yeah, yeah, I know what that is. Let's just keep, keep going here. And it happens so much in life. As a matter of fact, two weeks ago, I believe, my wife and I were in Seattle visiting my brother and my sister. They live up there. And they had some friends over, and we were getting ready for dinner. And a conversation came up about different historical figures. And someone brought up one particular historical figure, and it seemed like in one accord, everyone in the group was like, oh, that's an excellent point. I fully agree with your take on that. I, I, should, I, I should share that with other people. That's such a great take on this person. I didn't know who they were talking about, but I just so happened to have my laptop on my lap, wikipedia.com, type in the person's name, brief bio. Yes, I agree. That is an excellent take. You are so right about that. I can't believe how right you are. I'm going to share that with other people. And so just kind of breezed over and, uh, and <laughs> fudged it a little bit. People didn't know that I didn't know who we were talking about. Well, a couple days after that, Sandra and I were flying back to Phoenix from Seattle and while we're on the plane, she just turns to me, you know, out of the blue, and she says, hey, I've been meaning to ask you, um, the other day when they were talking about the different historical figures, who was that one person that they brought up? And I said, you didn't know who that was? Oh, you're so cute. You're so sweet. Oh, Sandra. And then I proceeded to tell her, tell her who it was. I actually told her that I held out on her like that and said, hey, can I share that story in big church? She said, okay. So anyways... We go through and there's these big words or these concepts thrown around and we're afraid to admit that we don't know. So, for the sake of the rest of our conversation, I would like to define for us 
what the gospel is. Simply put, the gospel means the good news of Jesus Christ demonstrated through his entire life. When I say gospel, I mean that there is a God who cared so much for his creation and his beloved that he couldn't bear the thought of separation from the human race because of our sin. So in God's foreknowledge and in his forbearance, he sent a means by which a relationship between sinful man, us, and sinless God could be restored to perfect harmony, a way by which every command would be fulfilled, preserving not only God's justice, but also could display his saving grace to sinners. By gospel, I mean that Jesus Christ, as God, came down from heaven to earth and demonstrated what the kingdom of God should look like. And he followed every single law that God had established for us to follow in faith. By gospel, I mean that Jesus' life served as a living sacrifice for those who would choose to believe that he's God. He died upon a cross as a sinless man, taking the punishment and the consequences that both our gross and our refined sins demanded of each of us. By his life and his death, he shattered the law between God and man, and through his resurrection, he now offers hope to a once hopeless human race that we, too, can be reunited with God. We can be considered sinless and deemed perfect through the life of Jesus Christ. By gospel, I mean this, that God so loved this world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So when we talk about the gospel this morning, this is what we're talking about. I think often gospel is one of those words that we hear early on in the Christian faith. It's almost considered the ABCs, excuse me, the ABCs of the Christian faith. We're to start with the gospel, but then we move on. Let's consider our lives charted out, our, our, our spiritual lives charted out. Um, and as a matter of fact, it'll be on the screen so you can see it too. But let's imagine it's charted out. It's separated into two sections with three defining points. Our birth, our point of salvation or believing in Jesus, and our death. And in between those two points, we have representing the unbelieving life when we didn't know Jesus and the believer's life when we come to faith in him. So if we were to look at the unbeliever's life and we were to say what one word, what one concept, what one truth would define the greatest need of those who do not know Jesus, I submit to you that that word would be the gospel. That we would say the gospel above all else is what the person who doesn't know Jesus needs to hear. And so if we take the second half of our lives from salvation to death and we say, what is the one word, what is the one statement, the phrase, the practice that the, that the believer needs to hear more than anything else? And I would submit to you then that word, that phrase is discipleship, broken down into categories such as holiness, service, dis, dis, whole, spiritual disciplines. And so it gets broken into two sections defined by our point of salvation. When I look at this chart, I hate this chart. I can't stand this chart because the wonder, the reason why I came to faith in the first place was because of the gospel, was because of the miraculous things that Jesus did, the stories of how Jesus made the blind see and how the lame would pick up their mats and they would walk away and how the deaf would hear. And so I believe in Jesus. I come to faith in Jesus and then there's a point, faith, and I move on to the disciplines of the Christian walk. We leave the simplicity 
of, the G, of Jesus towards the complexity of the Christian life. And I think this makes sense to us, and I think this is how we live because it makes such great sense to us. Consider your job, for instance. For me, when I was working at FedEx, before my first day of being a driver for FedEx, I had passion, I had zeal. I was so excited to be delivering packages in the name of Jesus, right? I was so excited that I was even dreaming about driving the truck and packages being delivered. I was fired up. And so the first several months, I was just loving it. But then over the course of time, I lost my passion and I lost my zeal and I lost my desire to deliver these packages. And so what once was something that I was just thrilled to do became a list of things that I had to do. We do this with our every ordinary day tax, tasks. We, we've got a list of the things that we need to do, and it just makes sense. But the gospel is the fun part. Not the tasks, not the dis- disciplines, not the, not the have-tos. The gospel, believing in Jesus, that's the reason why we came to faith in the first place. We believe in Jesus, but then after we come to that point, we say, now it's about living the Christian life. Now it's about winning God's favor. Now it's about keeping God's favor. Believe in Jesus, but something else. And I think it's a trick. It seems like a trick to me. We go from accepting the free gift of salvation to rules and regulations. We start playing, you know, the game, don't step on a crack or you'll fall and break your mother's back. But instead, the song goes a little bit like, don't sin or you'll go to hell. And it's not very much fun at all, right? And all through our lives, we start doing this game, just trying not to step on the crack of sin, trying to avoid the big ones, trying to avoid the things that are going to cause us to lose favor. And so we become disillusioned with the Christian religion because it's not what we were promised when we first believed. It's, It's a sneaky bait and switch. You see, discipleship, when I was growing up, the Christian life part, Discipleship for me, and I hope your D group isn't like this, but as I was growing up, discipleship started as a place to go and to learn about the saving nature of God's grace and to become more like Jesus. But after several months, each group, the conversation started to take the tone of who Jesus is and what he's done to things like questions like, did you touch her? Did you get drunk? How many quiet times did you do this week? Did you spend more time praying than playing Halo? Did you choose sports instead of church? Ultimately, what we were saying is, how did you tick God off this week? And then what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to come back next week and we're going to go over the list again and see how you ticked God off that week and how you just need to be better. We give attention to what rules we break and don't break And rather than giving attention to who is Jesus, we are trying to focus on not being a sinner. And I would say to you that this is not living. This attitude of just trying not to be a sinner, this is not living. This is trying not to die. Doing everything that we can to not die, to not lose God's favor. Jesus tells us exactly what living is. He says in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and live it to the full. And the concept of I have come that they may have life and live it to the full, it's not that you have a life and now he comes and he makes it better, 
But when you break it down, it's the concept of, I have come that you might have a life. And it just so happens that that life is going to be life abundant. You see, apart from Christ, we're dead. He comes to bring us, to, to bring us life, to infuse life into our hearts and into our souls, to make us come alive. There are so many voices, though. Jesus clearly says what life is, life in him. But there are so many voices that tell us, hey, this is what life is. Do this, be that, go here, go there. If you do these things, then you will save yourself from death and you will get yourself into heaven, or at least a functional heaven, something that promises, you know, heaven on earth. It makes me think of when I was growing up in elementary school. You know, third, fourth, fifth grade, you grow up, boys are into things like bugs and dirt, and girls just have cooties, right? That's the way it goes. They don't, they don't associate with one another because, heaven forbid, you touch a girl and you get, you know, the incurable cooties. But then sixth grade came, and something wonderful and magic happened. The cooties of the girls just kind of <whistles> floated away. And we started noticing how beautiful these girls were and how pretty they were and how much fun they were to hang out with. And so we started to talk amongst ourselves. Hey, which one do you like? Which one do you like? How are you going to date her? And dating at that point was pretty much just arranging a time to go to the jungle gym at the school and hang out for a specified time at a specified date. But that was dating and we loved it. And so all of a sudden... Out of these 11 and 12-year-old 6th graders, out of the ashes rise relationship experts who know everything about how to gain the affection of the opposite sex. And all of a sudden, we have little 12-year-old Dr. Phil's running around giving advice to other 12-year-olds on how to live life to the fullest. For us, we had two people in particular, Garrett Balancefer and Moggy Gomez. They were kind of our sages. They were our Gandalfs, if you will. And the reason was is because they were the couple that had, that had the guts to kiss in public first. So I remember, I remember it as clear as day. What wound up happening is they made the decision that they were going to kiss. And so there was an agreed-upon date. There was an agreed-upon time, lunch recess. And so what happened was is we had all of the guys over on the kickball field, watching all of the girls over on the tetherball court, waiting for the other to make a move. Naturally, the guys, being the eager ones, go ahead and make that first move, and they start making their way to the agreed-upon spot, behind portable A6. And so everyone goes back there. The girls, they see the guys moving, and so they move. And like the Spartans versus the Persians, these two worlds collide, and we push our representative out to the center, and the girls do the same. And Moggy and Garrett meet in the center, and they kissed for about six or seven seconds. And then the designated watchman, the Paul Revere of the sixth grade, he said, aid, aid, aid. And the aides were coming to break it all up and to end this glorious moment. And so we all just kind of scattered all over the place. But from that moment, Garrett and Moggy became the two people that we went to for relationship expert. What do you think, man? How should I approach this? I really like her, man. I would love to share my pudding with her, but I'm afraid that that's going to look weird. You don't share your snack pack, right? And they helped us navigate through the difficult times of elementary school relationships. But the voices don't stop there. For all of us, the voices didn't stop there. As we grew up, as we got older, even now, we have voices coming in telling us how to achieve heaven on earth, how to achieve quintessential happiness, it could come from our friends. It could come from our parents. It could come from MTV. It could come from Seventeen or Pop Magazine, from Men's Health Magazine, Family Circle, Car Audio Magazine to get you out of your zero-base hell that you're in. It can come from religion. You see, 
We spend our lives trying to escape whatever personal hells we find ourselves in and get into functional heavens. Escaping the mundane hell of whatever it is in our daily lives into some sort of a functional heaven. And me personally, I am struggling this, with this right now. Um, for those of you who know me, know that I love Apple products. I love the Macintosh line. Was that an applause? Did somebody clap? <laughs> I love Apple. They're clean. They're attractive. They just work. They're not a PC. Everything about Apple I love. And just this last week, Apple released Mac OS X 10.7 Lion. The new operating system that promises you heaven from a, from a disgusting workflow and promises the hell of streamlined email and it promises the heaven of, of you will never lose any file again. You will have automatic savings. So after working on that report for 10 hours, you forgot to save and it disappears. No more, my friends. No more of hell of losing important documents. We enter into a heaven of autosave. Unfortunately... I am stuck in the hell of Mac OS X Snow Leopard 10.6.8. And I know that if I upgrade right now to 10.7 Lion, some things are going to be great, but even still, some of my programs aren't going to work until third-party developers come out with updates and they ship those updates and I start installing them and it just so happens they only work on the Mac Pro and they don't work on the iMac or the Mac Mini. And so I am just in turmoil here trying to get myself out of this snow leopard hell and into this lion heaven. That's pretty good, huh? <laughs> you see, life and everything in it sends a message that by doing this or by doing that, by upgrading this or by purchasing that, that we can save ourselves from whatever our personal hell is. By having this or by doing that, we can live life to the max. For those of us who are hell is singleness. Relationships save us from that hell of singleness. For those of us, our hell is being poor. Money saves us from that hell of being poor. Divorce saves us from the hell of marriage. Kids save us from the hell of being barren. Fornication and promiscuous behavior saves us from a hell of celibacy. Drinking excessively saves us from a hell of no fun. Drug abuse saves us from a hell of anxiety, discouragement, and depression. The message in all of life is do what you can to save yourself. Save yourself while you still can. And I think we all become empty trying to pursue saving ourselves with all of these functional heavens. We become empty and we realize the weight of that emptiness and there's no answer. And so what we wind up doing is we turn to religion. And so religion winds up becoming a life of self-denial. And we try to save ourselves by not earning money. And we try to save ourselves by not drinking excessively. And we try to ourselves by not having casual and unbiblical sex. We try to save ourselves by giving everything away we have so as not to become hoarders or selfish. We become exhausted just trying to avoid the guilt and hell of losing God's favor because it's our behavior that's changing, not our hearts. 
Religion says, change your behavior. You see, only the gospel, when the gospel collides with your life, the transforming knowledge of Jesus, only the gospel renders good, real, authentic, spiritual fruit. Everything else is just a fake imitation of the goodness of the gospel's fruit. And so we wind up leading religion, worshiping religion. And worshiping religion leads to one of two things. The first thing that it leads to or can lead to is arrogance, spiritual arrogance and spiritual pride. When we stack our lives and our good deeds up against what others have done before us and we say, I feel pretty good. And so in that, we become sinners because we have committed the sin of pride. Or the second one, which I think is more relevant to us, the second one, depression and guilt because we continually fail to add up to the expectation or the bar that's been set for us to be holy for he is holy. We become depressed and disillusioned with the Christian faith. It's just the gospel colliding with our behavior, not our hearts. We try, and I think there's a reason why we continue to try to keep saving ourselves. And that reason is because I believe we relegate the relevance of the gospel to only those who don't know Jesus. We relegate the relevance of the saving gospel message of Jesus to the non-believer. You see, I said earlier that the gospels are the ABCs of the Christian faith. That's often how they're looked at. But I think that's a false lie. See, I believe that the gospel of Jesus is the A to Z of the Christian faith. It's everything. It's everything about what we believe. See, religion brings bondage and slavery because we try to keep every single rule and we get so frustrated because ultimately Jesus is the only one who is able to keep every single step of the law. He was the only one that could accomplish it. And so what are we left to do? Rather than being obligated and compelled to live life, <clears throat> rather than being compelled by guilt or obligation, we need to live life life like Paul did when he wrote in 2 Corinthians that he is motivated by the love of Christ. He is motivated by the love of Christ displayed on the cross for all the world to see. That is what compels him to walk the Christian life. In Jesus, he promised that we would have abundant life and we are no longer defined by what we do and what we don't do, but rather by who we are and what has been done for us. We kick religion and we kick law to the curb. And in the words of the great theologian, Silo, forget you and forget you too. We stop singing the song, He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. What a stupid song. Be good for goodness sake? How long is that going to last? How long is that going to motivate you to not do the things that you're not supposed to do in the Christian life? That's law. That's religion. That's, that's not the saving work of Jesus. When the gospel collides with our lives, when it truly collides with our lives, when we see it for what it is, we are compelled to live a life like Christ because we trust Christ. And we trust that he will give us life abundantly in this life and in the life to come. We believe that the cross wasn't a show. We believe that the cross is what brings us freedom, what brings us salvation, 
what brings us out of the chains and the bondage of religion. Amen. We do and we don't do certain things still. There's certain things that we stay away from and there's certain things that we do, but it's not out of fear or guilt. We do and we don't do certain things because we say with our lives that we trust Jesus. Anything less than the life that Jesus offers, anything less is just a cheap imitation and it will not fill you. I realize that I share this message of hope and forgiveness and and of experiencing real life, the gospel colliding with life and transforming everything about you. But some of you would say, but Dave, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You don't know the places that I've gone to, the dark areas of my life. You don't know what has happened 10 years ago that when conversations like this come up, it comes right to the forefront of my mind. You don't know. And I'll agree with you. I'll say, no, I don't know. I don't know where you've been. I don't know what what you've done. I don't know what you are struggling with this morning. But Jesus does. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus brought a message for you. And I want to share it with you this morning. He said to all of us that it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but rather the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And his service, that service that he came to make his life all about, led him to the cross where he was crucified for our refined and our gross sins, where he paid the ultimate penalty for the worst things that we have ever done so that we wouldn't have to obey the law but so that we can run into the arms of Jesus. We say that the gospel is the ABCs of the Christian faith and at the beginning you come, you kneel down at the cross, accept Jesus, and then you continue on into more mature, more Christian-like theologies or philosophies or practices. But what we are called to do is come to the foot of the cross, kneel down, and stay there for the rest of our lives, worshiping a God who is so worthy of our trust. He promises abundant life. This is what the word has to say about our God. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, And he had no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one who hides their faces, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so 
he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he would be cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge that the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. You see, when the gospel collides with life, something beautiful happens. All of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame goes upon him. And it rests upon his shoulders and he bears it in his body so that we can come to the Father and be seen as sons and daughters of a holy God, perfect as he is perfect. Our lives, they become wrecked and destroyed and the war of sin leaves us buried underneath the wreckage of past mistakes and bad choices and tough consequences. Like after the collapse of a building, we lay underneath all of the broken pieces of what once was. Religion tells us to reach through the rubble and to try to grip to where we can pull ourselves out. But there isn't any hope because the mound of debris is too high. But enter Jesus. Enter the gospel. It collides with our lives and underneath the weight of all we've done, Jesus reaches through, grabs our hand, and finds us in the aftermath of all of the sin in our lives. How has the gospel collided with your life? If this morning you don't know Jesus and you want the gospel to collide with your life, become a Christian. Become a Christian. Trust him that he will give you life abundantly. If you are a Christian, and you're asking yourself, how does the gospel collide with my life? What rooms have you reserved for your functional heaven? Not trusting that God will bring you heaven on earth. What areas of refined sins or even gross sins in your life have you said to Jesus, hands off, you can't touch, but want to come to a place of saying, you know what, I trust you. How does the gospel collide with your life so you are no longer motivated by guilt, by shame, by consequences of your past, but you are motivated by the love of Jesus displayed upon the cross, bearing everything in his body so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. How does the gospel compel your life? How does it collide with your life this morning? Let's pray. We'll do one more song and then, uh, then we'll be done. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the message of the gospel. It is the most beautiful, transforming message in all of history and I thank you that it's available to us for free, no charge for admission, no tricks when we get into the theme park. We keep having to pay for more tickets. It was paid once and for all. Thank you so much, God. Receive our praise and challenge our hearts on how we can be compelled by your love and not out of guilt to follow law and religion. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.